this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. This week, we had a very, or I had a very interesting conversation with Jerry Pond, uh, the CEO of Mariner Partners and the chairman of East Valley Ventures, a venture capital group based in St. John, but investing in companies all across Atlantic Canada. And Don, uh, you've known Jerry as, as long as I have, really going back to the 90s. And he's certainly been uh, first an icon in the telecommunications industry, but then in the last almost 20 years now, leading uh, a leading investor and mentor and advocate for the technology and the IT sector all across Atlantic Canada. Yes. Well, I first met Jerry. Uh, he was a customer of mine when he was the CEO of NBTEL. It's a very impressive individual, I must say, uh, right from the get-go. A smart, um, innovative, uh, forward-looking. Um, I happen to have the opportunity to, walk, to work with each of the four telcos in Atlantic Canada, and I, I judged NBTEL the best of the four. And um, you know, the people at MTT had an inflated uh, view about how good they were, and they would never acknowledge that New Brunswick had a better telephone company. <laughs> But they did. And they did because of leaders like uh, Jerry, who were very forward thinking, as I mentioned. You know, uh, his strategy was to uh, make sure that New Brunswick is the first fiber op network in Canada. It was part, as you know, in your role working for the government, a really important part of the strategy of New Brunswick uh, in, in terms of economic development. And Frank McKenna's own strategy of partnering with NBTEL to put uh, New Brunswick on the map as a high-tech jurisdiction. And a lot of that is as, as a result of the thinking that Jerry brought to the table. It's a very impressive individual. If, if you think about the career arc that he had, he started his career dealing with party line concerns on yes. the telephone <laughs> network, right, in, in rural right. New Brunswick. <laughs> and trying to arbitrate those issues around everybody on the same line uh, through to ultimately, of course, the fiber optic network and then ultimately what he's been doing in the last 10 or 15 years around IT. So imagine that career path to go from that sort of archaic understanding of telecom uh, to the high tech world of today. And he's been a leader all the way through. I did ask him about to try and give us a sense of why NBTEL did step step up and, and was more innovative than the other regional telcos or even national telcos. And he did also, as you just indicated, he put a lot of the um, reason for that back on the government and back on Frank McKenna, that apparently McKenna really pushed NBTEL at that point to be more innovative and to partner with government to try and attract companies and grow the economy using your telecommunications system. So a good partnership there, and I think a good example and a good uh, understanding of how um, a, a, a public uh, crown corp like that can be in a catalyst for economic development. But then, of course, right in the middle of that whole uh, um, uh, initiative, uh, uh, MBTEL sold and became part of Alliant and now Bell Alliant. So I think the jury's still out on whether that specific merger was good for the region, although I know you have some pretty strong feelings on that. Well, it was certainly good for the investors, and it was probably good for the senior employer employees who got probably a big payout package. It was not good for the region, and I'll tell you why. Um, there are many fewer jobs in the region. Um, 
in terms of the telecommunication industry. I think by most measures, it, I don't know how far it's down, but it's down quite a bit. I was told at one point that there were 1,500 jobs in St. John uh, with NBTEL, and they're down to four or 500. Uh, and those were well-paying jobs. Now, you could you can say, well, they in, in total, they were fat. There were too many people working in the telecommunications industry. Maybe that's true. And, and, you know, are we getting better service as a result of the uh, merger? I don't think so. Uh, in fact, it's harder to contact Bell. Than, it's not Bell Alliance. It's Bell, you know, in terms of getting things done. They're very slow to respond. <clears throat> you know, so service levels are not as good as they used to be, in my opinion. Um, are we getting better technology? Not really. You know, their competitor, Eastlink, has equally as good technology, and they're much smaller. <laughs> and here's the thing that's really hurt. You know, we lost four head offices. <clears throat> Those head offices spent a lot of money on services like marketing and advertising that completely disappeared. Completely disappeared. And all those jobs went to central Canada. So, you know, the economy overall, I think, was harmed by that uh, amalgamation. And, and like somebody wants to have a debate about that, happy to do it. But through employment, through impact in the community, they're not as evident in terms of supporting community causes. Their people are invisible in the region. They're not on any significant boards. They don't play a role in the community. They have literally disappeared from our region, in my opinion. Maybe that's too harsh, but that's my perspective. So I think I agree with you, Don, on most of that. Um, you know, most of even uh, the middle manager roles have now shifted to Ontario, along with almost all of the senior roles. But the question really, though, is, it, was it inevitable? Uh, you know, you had the increasing competition from Eastlink, Rogers, TELUS was coming on the scene nationally. Uh, so I think, you know, you could argue, some could argue that if Jerry hadn't pulled the trigger and he was CEO at the time of the merger, that two years down the road, uh, maybe that merger would have occurred anyway, maybe with less favorable outcomes for the investors and the senior uh, and soon to be retired employees. So I, I, I think I agree with you on everything you said. I just am not 100% sure, you know, that um, that he could have done much to stop what might have been an in, inevitable merger. Now, having said that, you know, maybe they could have merged with TELUS. Maybe they could have merged with Eastlink. Maybe there could have been a whole different configuration and they could have re remained this highly innovative regional telco, but it didn't work out. Uh, but yeah. the good news is Jerry pivoted, uh, and uh, I read somewhere that about a third of all the IT jobs in New Brunswick have some sort of connection to MBTEL and to Jerry Pond, either as an investor or mentor or some connection back to the mothership there, MBTEL. So that's the good news story is St. John did lose a 1,000 jobs, somewhere in that order, uh, but probably there's six or 700 higher-paying jobs on average in the IT sector in St. John as a result of, and in Fredericton as a result of, uh, of Jerry? Uh, no question. Like, you know, I give Jerry great credit for basically going on to a fully, a second career, really, using what uh, his background at NBTEL to create all these IT opportunities. Um, you know, he's heavily involved in a couple of very successful um, uh, buyouts, um, 
which uh, which were established especially in New Brunswick, uh, Radiant Six being probably maybe one of the bigger ones. Um, you know, so great credit for for kind of pivoting and 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 becoming the guru really of IT development in Atlantic Canada. I think he's done more than anybody else, not just in New Brunswick but across the region in terms of uh, of helping grow that sector. It's a uh, longer than usual interview, Don, but I think it's well worth it for people that are interested in his ideas around the importance of the IT sector and the opportunities for growth. He talks about his excitement about the ocean tech sector uh, centered out of Halifax, but benefiting the entire region. And he's got a lot to say about the role of government, particularly uh, as, a, as a supporter of research and, and sort of offsetting those initial costs, uh, the riskier costs of capital and uh, initial uh, in, investment in some of these startup companies. So he's, he's not uh, anti-government in any way. He's got some thoughts around the role of government, but certainly as a front-end investor. So without any other any ado, uh, here's my conversation with, uh, with Jerry Pond. Jerry, it's great to have you on the Insights Podcast today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path? How did you get your start in telecommunications with NBTEL? Well, it's a serendipitous type story. Um, I graduated from UNB with uh, a friend of mine from Three Rivers, Quebec, where I went to high schools, well, all schools, I guess, K to 12. And uh, he was getting married in St. John. I knew his wife because we double dated quite a bit. And uh, he wanted me to be the best man. I said, well, I've got to be, it was in later, I can't remember the exact date. It doesn't matter, I guess. I, I was, I said, I have a job in Montreal with international paper company. And I, I worked for them for five summers and uh, I had some attachment to them, but you know, it was just a job, I guess. And I said, well, if you can get me a job in New Brunswick, then I'll go to your wedding and be the best man. So that's kind of funny. And, and it turned out that her father knew the regional manager in Fredericton for NBTEL. And he put the word in to their recruiting department that he had a hotshot guy, which wasn't exactly true, right? I was interviewed, and they offered me a job in Moncton um, as a what was called a management trainee, which means I had a college education. It didn't mean I was smart, you know. And uh, so that's why I started in 1966 in May after the wedding. It was very convenient. Um, I was posted to Moncton. They had a couple of other openings, uh, but because I was bilingual, I thought I should go to Moncton. I didn't know anyone in Moncton to speak of, and it was a good experience for a young man. So how long did you stay in Moncton? About a year. Um, I My first job there was a service representative. Those are the people that answer the phones from the general public. And uh, in those days, it was called a commercial department, and it was the center of communication with the customer base, and also collection calls, just about everything. So I was put in charge of assisting the sales department, which was really not much of a job, but it was a job. And uh, as it turned out, I, I tried to do it well, and I said, we'd like you to go for your next assignment 
to relieve the regional managers around the province. At that time, NBTEL had offices in most of the major communities. So I went to Newcastle. It was Bermondsey City. It was Newcastle then. And then to Bathurst, Campbellton, Edmonston, and Woodstock. And then I was, I did a year of that pretty much. And then I was transferred to St. John, head office. Okay. Were you married at the time? Did your wife? No, or, I, I no. couldn't probably handle that. I was living out of my trunk, okay. of my car. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a milk run. All those and it was, well, you know, it had a huge benefit later on. I, I liked the job. I mean, it was interesting to meet new people and, uh, you know, new territories. I got to know the geography of the province really well. And I got to know many of the people in the field operations of the company, which is where I started. Hmm. And field operations for most businesses are the center of the universe. Not all, but so I was right in the thick of things, rural party line issues and, and uh, construction issues and payment issues and who the hell are you anyway? Where'd you come from? You're new, aren't you? you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a little bit of authority, but as an acting acting person, I wasn't the, you know, looked upon as being the real manager. I could fake it a bit, but not, not too well. So it was a great start to a career with NBTEL. So by the time I met you in the early, early 90s, you were already in a senior management role. Uh, what was the pathway to get there? What were you? Did you come up the marketing, the sales side of things, operations? Um, it was marketing as my next step after the commercial department, which was the customer service department today. And uh, I, I'd have to look at a an old book of some type <laughs> to help me out. But I bounced around mm-hmm. between different jobs in different departments and got to look which was part of the plan as a management trainee. In those days, they'd move you to different cities. You know, it was all about the job planning and, and progression and understanding business. Banks, of course, used to do that famously. And mo- most companies don't do that anymore. Right. But because of that, I, I actually worked in the engineering department for a bit. And uh, I guess I was never in finance. They didn't trust me on that. But weren't you the but, first CEO that wasn't an engineer, though, of the company? I was the first CEO in recent memory. But it turns out that the widow of a, the first CEO that wasn't an engineer appeared on the scene and corrected the company's statements about me. Okay. They, they tried that one. It went over until she saw it. I'm sorry, I can't remember his or her name, but she put up quite a fuss. I, I did not own that right. And that sort of taught me it's better to look at, you know, the facts than to pretend you know them. So we want to spend uh, a bulk of the conversation today on the last sort of 20 years of your career as a, as the what they call a code father. I'm not sure if you roll your eyes when you hear that. But, uh, but before we do, I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions about MBTEL. Um, Sure. A lot has been said and written about MBTEL and its role in economic development in the 80s and 90s. You were right in the middle of that. 
yes. including being the CEO when, when the merger occurred. Uh, I looked up the numbers. The call center industry or the business services industry is still a $1.2 billion export industry, if you can believe that, for New Brunswick. Yeah. It includes you know, TD and the big banks and, and the services that they provide to their customers across the country. I guess the question for you, though, on this is why didn't NBTEL just settle into its comfortable role as a local telco offering telephones and a good little local tel- telephone company? Why did it have to, you know, see itself as this innovation engine? Is it Was that deliberate or was that just the you know, the product of one of the CEO, like what, what motivated NBTEL to be more than just a comfortable regulated utility? Well, I suppose one thing would have been the success that we, meaning the province and ourselves at NBTEL had with that industry. It was, it was a product of early days internet, although there wasn't an internet, but there, it did it did connect with the phone system. And um, it was essentially computers and phones together. They weren't in the same device, but they were on the same desk. And that was called computer telephony integration, CTI. And it took, um, it took that, that technology feature to create the, that industry. And what it was is, uh, a form of caller ID uh, coupled with 800 calls, which are free to the calling called calling party. And that's, that's, that was a bit of a gimmick in a way. It didn't cost us more, but we charged twice as much for that. <laughs> so 800 call on the, you know, on the balance was our most profitable call. And uh, the rest is, is about some new technology that a company called um, Genesis Labs uh, invented, and we were their first business partner through a meeting that one of our technology guys had with them in California. And they were they were U.S. citizens, but they had moved to the U.S. from Russia, and they had connections with the with people in the Soviet Union that um, were excellent developers at reasonable cost. So they were offshoring a lot of their development work. It kept their prices down and they entered the market with all the big guys watching in disbelief. Well, we happened to be their first telco customer and that led to us being able to provide what was regarded as the industry anyway, as a top-notch service, along with our excellent skills of human, well, human relationships. How's that? So um, that set it off, and of course, Frank McKenna, the premier of the day, was often referred to as our chief salesperson, and there's some truth to that. He was. He, uh, he had a natural ability to build relationships, which is fundamental to sales. People think that sales is, well, I guess, forget that. I won't get into that one. But they view sales as the ability to talk. Some truth to that, but not much. Mm. It's the ability to listen and propose solutions 
to the problems that customers were having. Unstable workforces, uh, disrespect for the business, if you will, by the business community, fly by night, and, you know, and there were a few. Uh, those sorts of things, um, he was able to overcome them by displaying and meeting their needs. Uh, they were worried about uh, things like the cost of workers' compensation. And why would they be in, lumped in like they were in many states and provinces with a larger, more high, higher risk workforce? Many of the time, men and that sort of thing. And uh, well, he said, I can fix that. I'm the premier. And he had to go through a process. He didn't just write a memo, but he did fix it. And a bunch of things like that in his jurisdiction. Uh, then he perfected, and his team perfected, um, I guess you'd call it the part of part of the business or the sales process of hunting, finding customers. At first they were coming to us. Then after a while the reputation did create a flow like that, but it wasn't quite enough for our ambitions because we wanted to become, as somebody once said, it could have been you, we wanted to become the capital of the call center industry. And there was no vote on that, but through uh, that growth that we had and the reputation that we, we, we achieved with the customer base, the first ones in uh, were our best uh, reference and impeccable references. You can't go wrong in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Then we kept putting more money into technology we did a joint venture with Genesis Labs for Canada, and that involved, uh, I won't get into the details of that, but it was essentially taking that service from a decentralized model where the customer would have the switching equipment on their premises to an integrated model where we would serve them from our central office. It was a big deal in the telco. It doesn't sound too exciting, I know your listeners but it was it was innovation it was new and uh, with that by the way uh, Genesis Labs established an office to serve the technology side of the customer base on the technology side in St. John and uh, that, that office has grown and still exists so that was I don't know, 20 years ago. And they're serving their customers around the world now through another company because Genesis was sold three times or more during that period. But the service center, what's called a tech support center, uh, services the world from St. John. Yeah, it's an impressive legacy. I think, uh, so you're suggesting that that partnership with the McKenna let's say team mm -hmm. and things like the lower work and so workers compensation rate, the getting rid of sales tax on one 800 numbers that that combined with your innovative approach to de-risking that technology was the sort of secret sauce that made this thing work. And also the, I think you mentioned the customer service that you guys were excellent at customer service. Yeah. yeah. Well, many of the people that came with say companies that situated here, 
uh, were from the United States. And it was their first time in Canada, let alone Eastern Canada. So we had some people, account managers, we called them, that we put on those kind of assignments that would be, you know, friendly neighbor, if I can say it that way. And they would do almost anything for these people because they were new to town and they were new to a lot of things, I guess. And uh, they would treat them like they were their next door neighbor. They weren't, but they treated them that way. Mm. They would order firewood for them, for example. The best firewood they can get, best price, etc. Have it delivered and help put it in the basement. They would take them to the church, even if they didn't go to church themselves. <laughs> they would find, you know, the church of the religion of those people and invite them to church. And that's not that's not a, a bunch of BS, as they say. That was those are real examples, and I can go on for too long on them. I wonder if that still ha- does that happen today, or have we lost that little personal touch? <laughs> well, those people don't work. They're retired, so I couldn't say, I would say yes, but I don't think it was, this was an international bring new people to town model. Well, they hired mostly local people to do the work, but the management side was usually people from the home office. I guess they want to make sure that they weren't sold a bill of goods or I don't know, Mm. but that was the model. So it'd be two or three, maybe four, from the home office. And some were from Canada, don't don't get me wrong, but even if they were from Winnipeg, it was still the same process. Right. So let's fast forward a bit. The government nationally did more deregulation. You you were facing more competition as a telco, eventually decided to merge into, into what became Alliant and then ultimately Bell Alliant. Um, in hindsight, do you think that merger ended up being in the best interest uh, of Atlantic Canadians, all things uh, being considered? Well, you say Atlantic Canadians, so I'll break that out a bit. Um, certainly the shareholders, many of whom were Atlantic Canadians, and a lot of them were employees of NBTEL. Uh, they voted 90 some uh, 95% in favor. So that was a democratic vote. And one of the reasons why is NBTEL in the four-way merger here, Newfoundland and PEI and Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, um, there was a premium in there for NBTEL in, in that offer. And the offer, of course, to buy the company. And, uh, so that w- would have made any shareholder in Atlantic Canada extremely happy. And to give you some sense of scale, NBTEL had a, let's see if I got the words right here, um, employee stock plan, which allowed the employee to buy up to 20% of an allotment that they would have. We won't get into all the details of it. And 100% of the dividends were rolled over. It was a dividend-paying stock, as you as you know, and that was still the case. Uh, div- you know, telecom companies pay generally dividends to keep their shareholders happy. 
in a competitive model. So um, that situation would have created a fair number of employees of all stripes. This is rank and file people. A lot of them were breadwinners, and I hate to say it, but that would mean that they were men because that's the way the model worked, right? More, uh, not the same as it is today, but these people, breadwinners, let's call them, they were, they were, they had, a, a, what would I call it, I guess, a, a return on investment in the millions of dollars. They would have saved and bought stock, saved, you know, maximized the opportunity given to them and obviously adjusted their lifestyle to have hundreds of dollars less in their pocket. But they viewed it as a savings plan and better than the pension plan. And it was. So the new millionaires on the street became NBTEL employees, hmm. which I suspect bothered the other neighbors on the street. But they were following the rules and a lot of companies had those kinds of plans in those days. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying for the for the employees, it actually uh, made sense because it was kind of, it was a lucrative process in terms of the transition. Well, the employees, I mean, they did the, they did live without that money. For it wasn't like it came from thin air, right? So they were happy, and our other shareholders were happy. The world and Canadians, and I can't remember the number, but I would put it in the high sixties. Uh, other than Bell, of course, it was sitting out there. They owned about thirty percent, so it was close to all the people. But there were others, and political stripes, and other people who had other jobs who didn't see it the same way. Right, they saw it as a, a beginning of the end, and they had. I guess, visions that this would result in no local people to talk to. So an absentee landlord kind of model became a branch plant in their mind. And they'd seen it before. It played out in many cases. That's what happens when a company is purchased by another business from away. So their fears were probably accurate. And our former chairman of the board and former CEO, longstanding, by the name of Ken Cox, cautioned the people present at the shareholders meeting that this could be the beginning of the end. In, in his mind, he, I don't know how he voted at the end of the day, he counseled people to think twice about doing this. But with numbers in the 90s, I think you realize it was a democratic process of the shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you went through the process, the merging of the telcos. You ran the combined telco for a while. But eventually you did step down and, and started your own company. And I'm wondering what what prompted you to do that? Why didn't you take another executive role in the telecommunications industry? You could have taken a role in Bell. You could have done a number of things. You could have gone into other industries. So what what 
what motivated you to do a startup at your age and stage in life at that time? Well, um, my first job there was to continue doing what I had been doing, I guess, without the job title around it. I was CEO, but I was also chief development officer, in quotation marks. And we were starting new businesses with our newfound knowledge. And uh, other than the call center business, that was more traditional. So we had a number of those underway, and I assigned young men and women to uh, be the CEOs of those early days, what we now call a startup. A startup inside of a, a company is referred as sometimes intrapreneurship. Anyway, uh, we were following that chapter, that book, playbook on intrapreneurship. And like most businesses, it, it attracted the younger set. And it also, I, I think, fulfilled their idea of a good job. So the company was the banker. <laughs> kind of nice. They could do almost anything in the name of, of growing a business. Not that they would do it illegally, but they were constantly stepping out of bounds with the rest of the organization. You can't do that. The engineers would tell them, you can't do that. Well, why not? Well, you can do it technically, but that's not something we do. So they would push back. But nonetheless, it did train them in the real world. And uh, I guess that would that led to some of those businesses being spun out. And uh, even after the merger, one of those was called iMagic TV. And it was uh, it was listed on the Toronto and New York Stock Exchanges, double listing. And there was lots of fanfare around it. But it came out just as the tech com bubble burst, which I suspect some of your listeners would understand what that meant. A more recent phenomenon would have been the real estate bubble bursting in the U.S. But uh, th this happens periodically in the market and a bunch of reasons for it. But to make it short, um, it was oversold. Fiber was oversold. You know, the visions of the future were oversold. And when they came home to roost, fairly large companies like Enron would have gone bankrupt. And then a bunch of other little companies tied to the vision of growth uh, just did not move at all. And then to finish that chapter a bit, when Bell indicated to the market, to the media in, in particular, that they were not going to use our technology, our solution, that pretty well killed whatever life was left. Mm. And the IPO uh, went from, I don't know, $6 to $1.10 or something. And it was sold to Alcatel, one of the shareholders, for a pittance. But the interesting thing is, um, we, were, we had started Mariner Partners at that time. And literally next door, all these great technologists and marketing people were let go by the new owner. So they formed the core of our new business. And uh, we rode that for quite a while.
in marriage partners. Yeah. So, you know, one person, one entity dries up, it provides a uh, an opportunity for another. So it's kind of funny that Alcatel didn't see the 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 value yeah. in that talent that you saw. Well, they probably weren't looking at talent. They were looking at the bottom line. The company was very, very much unprofitable, like most startups. They run on a 10-year cycle where you're going to break even year five, six, seven, and then start making money in a exponential way. Like That's pretty much the, the profile of, of a company that is a brand new company with no customers and blah, blah, blah. So um, the other reason, though, which is more of a business reason, is that they had purchased another company that was a competitor. And they they voted, in, in effect, internally and decided they were going to support the other company that happened to be in Europe, where their head office was. Okay. That's the reality. So you founded Mariner Partners, you took this pool of talent, you ended up setting up multiple companies, uh, and then through East uh, Valley Ventures, investing in a lot more companies. I have been told that something like one third of all IT sector jobs in New Brunswick have a connection to Jerry Pond, either through your time at MBTEL or through your role as investor and mentor. I don't know who came up with that stat. I read that somewhere, but I think it's probably pretty close to to reality. I was wondering if you, you already talked about iMagic TV, but I was wondering if you could tell us of a couple of examples of all of the firms you've worked with that really stuck out in your mind or that you're, you were or are very excited about. Well, you know, we're fortunate to have a lot of people. I don't know about a third. I think that sounds like a fishing story, but it's, it's a, a goodly number. And if they were all were working together, it would be quite impressive from their capacity, not from my capacity, from their capacity. So um, I, we've never tried that except a company called Radian 6 did assemble a number of them and some new ones from from other parts of the business community and some returnees, if I can use that word, um, coming back to New Brunswick from spending time in Western Canada Vancouver area in particular. So they became a bit of a dream team to start off a new a new area that was essentially the product of the internet becoming available to most people. So Radiant 6 is, in my words, their objective was to explain somewhat with data how they were being viewed by their customer base, or their competition, or, or their government. So it would collect this information and put it in front of whoever wanted to see it. Turned out the public relations people were the first customers inside those companies. So that meant quite a need. And it involved a search engine, which many people would refer to as Google or Bing or whatever. That technology was invented by then we just perfected it against this objective of collecting as much public information as we could about a particular company. It could be a person too, and it was in some cases. 
So that was a that was a purpose a purpose search engine. And after a while, it became evident that many large companies were so large they didn't have the data from the shop floor, from the the data from customers that they felt they needed. And they became quite interested in this. So it moved into the marketing domain for counter competitive management management and things like that. More useful than just, is that what they're saying about us? Then a few customers, I could name one in particular, that became sort of the darling application. It was Dell Computers out of Texas. And at that time, Michael Dell, the founder, was running the company. And when he uh, realized the information that he could get, like with his morning coffee, if you will, <laughs> uh, it, that is better than the news. <laughs> uh, he then started to understand how he could apply that. So I guess like most, most Texans, he applied it at the maximum level. He built a, well, built, I guess. He had a um, sort of a tech control for every time zone in the world. Mm. So you could get it 24 hours a day. There's always somebody awake somewhere. And unfortunately, at that time, uh, Dell made some strategic mistakes that got them into trouble with their public with their customer base and generally the public. They moved their technology support center for customers to India and nothing to do with India. I'm not, I'm not suggesting India couldn't do it, but for a variety of reasons, they didn't manage it well. Mm. You know, and it became a source of what was called Dell Hell. And then they made another mistake when their batteries in their laptops started explore, exploding, literally, and and were on fire in conferences and places like that. You know, as a person's giving their, their, their speech in front of their laptop, the thing blew up in their face. No one was injured. But it was a worldwide event to see if you could get a picture of these things blowing up. One blew up in a hospital in Vancouver. Well, a chap had it on his lap in bed. That's pretty exciting for the hospital mm. and the and the, you know the person next door. These were horrific events of a public relations nature. They made another mistake. They blamed it on the supplier of the batteries. Well, they chose the supplier, probably with fine print that said these things could blow up. I don't know, yeah. but batteries do blow up still today. The very best of batteries do blow up. Hmm. But that locked our contract in like nothing else could have. And Mr. Dell eventually retired to the chairman of the board job. And now he's back, I think, running the company. It was a significant event, which we captured in customer by customer quotes. If he, he didn't believe his, his frontline people. Hmm. So every time, somewhere, anywhere in the world, 
raised an issue related to Dell, you were firing off yeah. that information. Good or bad, or mediocre. And for a while, they were all bad. And that image of a company of that size, they're pretty good size, I don't know the number now, but they were a household word, still are. And uh, they clearly identified the value of our service to a large company in particular that, you know, didn't have people that would filter information back to the boss. Mm. So it was that that made the company attractive to Salesforce? Well, it, it wasn't that in particular. That allowed us to grow exponentially. And uh, it was, we had virtually no Salesforce because customers were calling us. That, that's a beautiful thing. You put it, you compound that. And uh, I'm not saying people didn't do the job of marketing or sales, but the volumes that came in from large customers just were unbelievable. They would call Dell and find out what they did and we'd get an order. Yeah. So, Never seen anything like that before. Probably won't so, again. So, yeah, it's an amazing story. So we... As I said before, many of those first-generation startups had an MBTEL connection. Either they were uh, ex-staff of MBTEL or had some, yeah. some connection to MBTEL. Don Mills and I are very interested about where the new generation of tech entrepreneurs are coming from. They're, they're, we don't have MBTEL anymore. Well, yes. Based on all of your work and your investing, where where are they coming from these days? Are they from coming out of universities, immigrants coming out of other industries such as finance? Like where where are you seeing these bright, ambitious entrepreneurs coming from? I would say the largest block are coming out of the university system in Atlanta, Canada, which is a premier system by any standards. There's a volume of fairly small, but very good at what they do, universities. And uh, they cover the waterfront, you know, the waterfront being technology and business management. So some of them don't have technology, like St. Mary's, wouldn't have engineering, but they have a good business MBA program, etc. So you put the two together and on the same block, really, downtown Halifax, you've got a university that could produce a startup just out of the, you know, six or seven people on a project working together. Mm. They often don't work together. And I think what's happened is they've seen the competition for this caliber of resource where they can turn their university into a, an incubator accelerator. And they have, and then they bring in others that work at, doing the same thing inside that plant. In, well, I won't call it a plant, inside the university. So um, they, they've attracted other people to the university because they have an entrepreneurial course and degree in some cases, and they have these other skills that they've always developed. It becomes a package, a very competitive package. And that allows us to produce a good number of startups. But they're not the only ones. 
Mm-hmm. So are you happy with the role that these uh, incubators, startup incubators and accelerators are playing in the region? We've gone from none when you were involved with Radiant 6 and now there's one in every community and there's sectoral and they're in the universities. Are yes. you happy with yeah. the, are they playing an important role? Yes, they are. And uh, I have to confess, I co-founded one of them uh, called Propel. And now it's uh, got a new role. It was Propel St. John when we founded it. And we felt we needed something like that to uh, up the game a bit. And uh, the people around that were from local local startups or local companies that uh, were laid off. I won't go through their names. They'd be maybe embarrassed by it. So it was a really uh, a think tank type of environment where they could come to meetings almost any time of the day or night, and we could work together and get stuff done. So we formed uh, what is now Propel, and it went from St. John to the province of New Brunswick to the Maritimes, to Atlantic Canada. It went from, a, I guess, a real-time university model, or sorry, accelerator model, to a virtual one. So they had one of the first virtual Atlantic and first one in North America. It doesn't matter if they're first or 10th, they were in the lead. And that model, of course, with the pandemic and a few other things, has become the most popular, in some cases, the only way to do it pretty excited with what they've been able to accomplish. There's still more to go. But yes, community-based accelerators, and like you said, most communities have one, or they have one that roams through their town, if you will, uh, connecting dots that were never connected before with the business community. They were almost like a, a city or town We'll say a town or village 30 miles away or kilometers away would have been viewed as a competitor. Don't collaborate with those guys. It was a hostile environment. Mm. Now they're collaborating to get the scale they need. Interested by banks, interested by venture capital, etc. So it's helping grow the economy in those small rural type communities. Yeah. Jerry, it's it's pretty remarkable your career. You've gone from worrying about party line issues in the mid '60s, you know, to this entire IT uh, online revolution that we've seen now. Uh, when you look to the future, and you you continue to dabble, I understand, and make investments and 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 stay active in the space. Do you where do you see opportunity for Atlantic Canada? Do you see specific technologies or sectors where we have an edge? Cybersecurity, others do. Are there any that you think um, we have an opportunity moving forward? Well, um, yes, to answer your question. And interestingly enough, the, it's a bit like the old days, the so-called resource industries, which are often used as examples of poor sportsmanship and poor everything. But, you know, they built the economy of the country, whether it's lumber, whether it's mining, and you know, a lot of our, a lot of our power came from the rivers and, you know, like hydroelectric dams. It built the country that, and we can't turn our back on it. But one that we missed totally, 
a natural resource that is still sitting there pretty well with a single use, and that's to put ships going from continent to continent over it. It's a transportation system, the water. But the oceans are huge, full of life, and full of other stuff, quotation marks. And there is a, a national objective to do something about that. And the ocean, I've forgotten the exact name, um, supercluster, I think it's called. Right. You know, you have to realize a bunch of bureaucrats got a hold of this. So a supercluster, what does that mean? It means it's unlimited opportunity. And they are funding the infrastructure around that and also seeking other support from provinces and other companies that may have the financial wealth to do something about that. So that's underway out of Halifax, central point, but it's an Atlantic Canadian initiative. These things get blurry after a while, but a startup could go there, fit into their buildings, which I guess everyone needs a bit of shelter, but they would be able to work with companies that are able to work with companies that could add value to what they're doing. And this cross-fertilization can occur in one building or two in Halifax. But it's a resource for all of us. And the resource they're trying to understand how to mine, in quotation marks, is the ocean, which has tremendous potential and tremendous danger. I don't mean from ships sinking in a hurricane, but rather from the very fact that the water, if it rises too much, is going to destroy a number of cities. Mm. So people have to figure out what we're going to do. I understand Antarctica is close to creating a collapse of the structure, the ice structure. There's a name for it. I don't know what it is. If that starts to melt because the structure changes, you know, through a large crack or whatever, mm. then it could have the potential of raising the oceans two feet. Just one continent. Mm. So there's a huge danger in a, in a climate sense to the oceans as well. That's what I meant by that right. comment. Right. And you see opportunities for entrepreneurs to step in and try to solve some of those issues? Oh, yeah. And, you know, underwater craft used to be called submarines, but special duty underwater craft that um, could be down there, not just for uh, looking at the fish, but to see what is going on in plant life, examine it very closely. I mean, we haven't mapped the whole ocean yet. Hmm. And there's black holes down there too, not just in the sky, but certain animals. There's a lot of mineral there, but you don't have to, you have to change the model a bit. There's a lot of invention and innovation required there. I unfortunately have no interest in that, meaning I have no investments in companies that are out there to do that. So I'm, yes, I'm an old man with a lack of adventure. But if I were a young man, I would be right in the middle of that. 
That's where you'd be putting your effort if it was 1966 all over again. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the bureaucrats earlier. I did want to ask you, and I know you've been a bit of a skeptic in some areas. I wanted to ask you about what you think the role of government should be. Uh, government does see uh, tremendous value in this sector. It generates a lot of tax revenue, a lot of good jobs for citizens. Uh, so they want to play a role, but sometimes they can overstep. Uh, what do you think the right role for government and economic development agencies is to foster a thriving technology sector in Atlantic Canada? Well, to be to be fair to, in particular, the federal government, because a lot of the dollars, the, the bigger dollars, are are put in the system by the federal government. And they have a multitude of programs. But the program that I would suggest has done yeoman work for the taxpayers and the companies, obviously, is the um, partial subsidy of R&D. And they define what they want by R&D. It's not just anything. It's you know first-line research against a particular technology opportunity or phenomenon. And uh, if you can make the story, it doesn't have to be airtight. They will support that if you put money in and your investors. So they don't do 100%, but they do a good number depending on what it is. And they have been around for 20 years. They're at the core of our successes Mm. in many industries to date, in my opinion. Um, like a lot of things, you know, they can overdo it. Uh, they can spend their money uh, like on two or three companies instead of spreading it a bit, but that's just fine-tuning. So the answer to your question would be, in one, one word, fund some of the R&D costs. R&D is where it's at. Without R&D, you don't have innovation or inventions. And without those, you don't have new businesses, usually speaking. There's a couple of things you could, you could open up another coffee shop, nothing wrong with them. And you could develop a system that allows you to drive through whatever, without stopping, which uh, might be a good idea, right? <laughs> and you don't <laughs> pollute the atmosphere and all that yeah. in line. But it's instant coffee, more or less. And that's your invention. But if you just develop a drive-through model, copying what's there today, good luck. So that dream that I'm talking about of instant coffee, not the one in a bottle, but instant real coffee, after you place the order, that would be exciting to the market. So it's a simple thing, well, not to do it, but... The, the business acumen required to, to run a shop like that is not much different than the current shops. Hmm. But how they do it and what they're able to do with their invention to make this instant coffee. Now, they'll argue they're pretty close to that. And if you've ever seen those people working in the shop, you know, to make the coffee, uh, they have to move very quickly. Hmm. Yeah, no doubt. So you're saying the best role, most important role, at least over the last 20 years, has been federal support for research, which kind of de-risks those initial private sector yes. uh, investments. 
because uh, a lot of it can can end up at a dead end. A non-marketable researched product. Not much good to anybody except the people that did the work. But those things have a tendency maybe to sit on the shelf for a bit, even the ones that don't get commercialized. And then somebody else comes along with an allied idea and they use some of the IP, intellectual property, from that first invention or innovation and makes them go faster. Hmm. So it rarely goes out in the garbage. Some of it will, yeah. So uh... every other discipline around a company can be assisted. You can have better sales, international sales in particular. That's a problem we have in Canada. Mm-hmm. Across a, a whole number of industries, we don't know how to sell internationally. And we're not so good at selling even domestically. But uh, it's one that I, in particular, want to talk about a lot when I, I'm allowed to, is uh, there's no sense in developing a very innovative product if you can't sell it. Mm-hmm. But that is the case. Um, there was some, I guess it wasn't pure research, uh, a lady by the name of Mandel, her last name. She wrote a book called, which, which I still read from time to time. It's called uh, Mexicans Don't Drink Molson, referring to the beer. And uh, she spent some time as a, as a writer, analyzing failures of Canadian, Canadian products and services, in particular when they went to the United States. So it's quite a list of unpopular reading. She didn't have any statistical analysis like you might do, but she had anecdotal up the proverbial river. Right. And uh, what it showed was the executives of Canadian companies, these are large companies, did not understand the principles of sales and marketing. Hmm. And they were out hustles, and I've got to be careful what I'm saying here, by Mexicans. So I've forgotten the name of the beer that became popular about 10 years ago. We put a lemon in the top. It must be either Corona or Dos right. Equis. Yeah. So Corona was outselling Molson, three to one, in the United States. And as somebody once said, "I'll be careful here. This is no. I'm telling the truth about something that's bad. <laughs> you know, not reflecting on the Mexicans' capability. It actually enhances their capability. But you know, who would want to drink water from Mexico, let alone beer?" So they have a disadvantage going into any market in North America. Yet they overcome it by, I guess, a reasonably good flavor in a bottle that you can see through that will allow sunlight through that will destroy the quality of the beer in a matter of hours. So they break every rule in the book and they out-hustle us in Canada. Our largest market right next door and we watch their television all the time where it's advertised, right? So she has these, I'd advise anybody 
to have a look at that. It's still Gervain. But that, that kind of leads into my next question, because Don Mills wanted to ask you about why so many of our best and brightest young companies end up just selling at some point, Radiant 6 and QN Labs, but Verifin and Newfoundland. I mean, it, it's almost, in his, his mind, it's almost like they're built to sell. That may or well, may not be true, but, well, but it, I it, guess... The, uh, just but that when you when you sell to a multinational, you're now into that international sales channel, though, right? You 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 can tap into Salesforce.com's global benefit yes. sales. But why why does that happen? Number one and number two, do you see any in the future when when those firms will be able to build from here, go public from here, and build their sort of national or global empires out of Atlantic Canada? Well, a few are happening now. They're not as high profile, but Verifin was sold to the, get this right now, stock exchange uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I've forgotten, this is one of, one of my problems. I forget things that are immediate, immediate past. I remember things from 40 years ago, but uh, they could have gone IPO or they could have been publicly listed. Therefore, their own boss, to some extent. Remember, the shareholders still control that. And if it's a public company that decides they don't like what's being done with their money, they can, there are many ways that they can oust the management, they can change the direction. And many funds do that. Right. You know, there's a whole industry around that. So there's no safe place from being sold. Engineered internally or engineered from outside, and I think it's a it's a flaw in thinking to say if something is locally controlled at the beginning or even midway through that it's secure. Uh, we have some outstanding examples of that being the case, but uh, you know the, the current generation that are running those businesses still believe in the model that. They're going to remain here and they're private. They're not going to allow any other shareholders in for the very reason they want absolute control. And, you know, that's a good thing. Now they can be, they can find out that their internal processes and their internal thinking is not enough to remain competitive and their competition will take them out to lunch not somebody else buying them. Their competition wipes them out. Right. Now, I'm not forecasting that because they're very, uh, I'm thinking of Irving mainly, but McCain and other, you know, less uh, large, l- smaller companies. But we've had some inter intra maritimes buy, buying and selling. So do you think a Nova Scotia company would be safer bet buying your New Brunswick company than one from New York. I don't, because it's all it's it's like life itself. Um, I don't want to get into examples of the animal kingdom, but there's a way of leveling playing fields. It could be no rain, does it? Could be too much rain, whatever, and certain animals just get wiped out. So it isn't one type or species of company that's allowed to 
because they're locally owned, go forever. It's a myth. So let's use some examples. Um, and why maybe we should develop a approach between the private and public sectors of looking at these companies uh, that are uh, ripe for, for, for being bought out and develop a strategy that is based on what they need to grow. If they're lacking human resource skills, which is a case of a lot of them today, then we can go about developing a provincial plan or a regional plan, even better, Atlantic regional plan, that would allow us not to stockpile people, but to, to be able to communicate with them better than LinkedIn can. That there's a, there's a bunch of work in Atlantic Canada. And by the way, this is one of the best places to live if you like the outdoors. If you like a 4 by 4 electric 4 by 4 you know, this is the place to be. And uh, start selling it before the problem occurs of why they're going to move out. They usually move out because a resource is missing. Study that, like you could study that. Mm -hmm. It'd be a big, big business for you, David. Study this entity and say, what does it need to grow from here? The same way a local owner would have to answer that same question. Right. So it's not a mysterious thing that these companies get sold. The downside is they all seem to leave town. But um, I don't want to go into this too philosophically, but they'll leave town anyway if they can't keep up. Right. And um, this is one of Mr. Irving's primary arguments about keeping the government and you know the resources of the region on top of the pack so we're competitive wages are competitive people are competitive products are competitive and governments are competitive right so i'll give you an example that's close to my heart if i could mm -hmm. i go off script here a bit <laughs> please but, uh, speaking of competitive so New Brunswick has a very generous uh, investment tax credit for young companies, just about one of the best in Canada. And that has an effect of reducing the cost of an investor if they keep that, that investment for five years. So that's a bit of a, you know, you, you can't just invest and leave and get the credit. You have to stay a period of time. So they put controls around it, rightly so. But uh, it gets to have rules like, again, probably rightly so, that you have to be a New Brunswick investor to get the credit if you're investing in a New Brunswick company. So there's two, two criteria. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we're looking for is foreign investment. There's not enough local investment. So it's called direct foreign investment. I think you probably coined that term. That's what we're looking for. So why would outside companies not get the credit? 
we, we, we tend to look for moving their whole company here, like a, a raid, <laughs> you know. Let's go down there and pull them back here. That requires even more money, I, I would suggest. A lot of money and may even ruin them for, for whatever reason. So uh, let's open up our eyes a bit to say, well, who is likely to invest and then go to where they are and offer them an incentive for investment. Hmm. Just as simple as that, rather than saying, well, you can't invest in startups in New Brunswick because you're not from here. You can, but we're not giving you any ITC investment tax credit. Right. It seems quite um, narrow minded. Mm-hmm. Like the end goal is not being thought of. It's like a project that stops where the, where the opportunity is getting really good, where the money really is. Right. And if that money comes in, does it destroy anything? It's owned by foreigners. Dividends go out. You know the flows. Very important. But dividends go out anyway. And I suggest there won't be any dividends in most startups. So Arkansas have figured a way around the rule of local investor. You, you can, I can invest in Arkansas, you can, as a New Brunswicker. And what they do is they find a proxy for your investment who is a local investor. And I don't know how that exactly works in the law, but it's legal. And the proxy becomes you in Arkansas. Okay. On paper. I think there's a, one other state that does something similar, Wisconsin mm. or something like that. It doesn't matter, but it shows Arkansas really wants new business. Yeah. They're prepared to go to great lengths to satisfy what the investors are asking in a competitive world. Yeah. We can't even invest in Atlantic Canada and get the credit. So there's a move afoot to make that happen, as you know. It has Atlantic been Canada. 10 years. Yeah, I retired I, and younger people are doing it. I <laughs> wish them well. Yeah. I think the chat, well, I, I agree with this idea. I think it's a really good idea. The challenge you have is that in the politics of it are tricky. So for, for, a, for a government to offer tax breaks to New Brunswick investors, that, those are all voters. For the government to inv- provide a tax break to somebody from Arkansas or Toronto, they're not actually voters. So huh. I think the focus has to be more on the return on investment, like the, the need for that capital, as you, as you indicated earlier. That's, uh, that's what I call a deemed belief. Like you want that to be the case, so you make that case. Mm-hmm. It, there's no fact around that. Right. No fact that voters will vote governments out because they had investment tax credit. And, uh, you know, a company down the street got some of them or an investor got them. I have never heard a complaint like that in my life. And sometimes investors are getting poor and still investing. They may have a nice looking house. They may drive a nice car, but does that mean they're rich? So it's such a phony argument. There's no basis for it, in my opinion. Hmm. And the fact that the government keeps using it tells me they don't understand economic development. Mm-hmm. Foreign so they, direct capital investment. That's what they want. Yeah. You don't look for it. Yeah. 
I'm well, Porter in Halifax. Hopefully, they'll be listening to this podcast and they'll take your advice. We, <laughs> I doubt we're, it. we're well over the hour, Jerry, and we could talk for another hour. And I That's apologize; I have many other questions, but I wanted to end on a couple. I wanted yeah. to ask you what you're doing these days. Are you still investing? Are you still active? Are you playing shuffleboard? Like, what, what are you doing these <laughs> days? And then the, the follow up to that is: Are you considering writing a memoir? Absolutely not. I'm a lousy writer. I can answer that quickly. Um, some people have offered to do it, and some have written a little bit about the process. Um, but I'm not intending to do any of that. Hmm. So that's a quick answer. And uh, what was the first question again? What What are you up to these days? Are you still oh, investing? Are you still active in the business? Same thing I've always I chair the board of Mariner. I'm an active chairman, meaning I don't sit on my derriere, but I don't want to interfere with the management of the company. I have to, a role to play, but I'm active, like every day active. And uh, hopefully it's just consulting. I'm not telling anyone what to do. I couldn't do that anyway. But then on the East Valley side, like we essentially created a company there with a purpose to help Mariner understand opportunities in the region that we could buy into or we could see good people and buy them, if you will, hire them. What a way to do it. Get right inside the business as an investor, front end, and help them grow. You learn, they learn, and the spoils, if I can call it that, of a success could be jointly held. I'm, I'm speaking figuratively. Yes. We could then have an excellent CEO in waiting. He's just working for another company that we have created relationships with and understand their behaviors. Mm. So I, I still do that and I'm doing that every day. So you're ever going to retire? Well, I have to at some point. My wife says that, uh, my advisors all say that and my body is saying that, <laughs> but I, I've got to say, well, tomorrow I'm not going to do that. But we have 24 companies, 24 25 companies. actually, with two under construction as we speak. Fantastic. Two investments being worked as we speak. Yeah. So last question. Um, we always ask this question of our guests on the Insights Podcast. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada right now? Is this in a COVID world or not? <laughs> let's, let's, let's look out three, four, five years. Are you yeah. an optimistic guy about our future or are you worried about shrinking labor markets and what are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Absolutely optimistic. We have so many opportunities and we've proven it. Like not we is not me. We is this community of people investing in opportunities hmm. from here for here. It works. Like, what other evidence do you need? Or does anyone need? Uh, we've got it right in East Valley. There's currently 26 companies. No, 24 with two under construction, like I said. But just follow the track on those. We have the ones that were sold. We don't put how much the investors made on that. Hmm. But I can guarantee you, we're not selling for getting our money back. That's not why we're doing that. 
There are different ways to do what we want to do. We could have a body shop. Like, you know what I mean by a body shop? A recruiting agency that collects all the good people, massages it for the local market, and allows people not just to get a good employee, but to get somebody that that company recommends you take based on this evidence. Mm-hmm. Great opportunity. Alongside could be that company. Well, it's great to see that you're optimistic about the future. In fact, most of our guests are. So, uh, Jerry, it's really, really great. We really appreciate you joining us today on the Insights Podcast. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.